This edition of The Standard is brought to you by the AXA Startup Angel Competition. I'm Sharma Dean Reed, founder and CEO of The Stack World, and I'm here to help you turn your business dream into reality. There are six chances to win the competition, including two top prizes of £25,000, mentoring from myself and leading UK founders, plus business insurance for a year, thanks to AXA. Go to standard.co.uk forward slash AXA Startup Angel for details on how to enter and complete your entry by the 2nd of June, 2024. Good luck. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. ES Audio. From the Evening Standard in London, I'm John Weeks, and this is The Leader. And, and they've looked after you really nicely. Yeah, they always do. Yeah. It's a pity you don't pay them more. Well, we are trying. We are no, trying. No, we're not trying. We need to try harder. Right, I will take that away. Yeah. No, they are a very nice team here, aren't they? they? Are, but it's yeah. important because they do very hard. They do do very good work, yeah. That was the moment 77-year-old Catherine Poole, a patient at a hospital in Croydon, told Prime Minister Rishi Sunak to pay nurses more. That was just under two weeks ago, but today members of the Royal College of Nursing have voted to go on strike in the biggest action of the union's 106-year history. The union has demanded a pay rise of 5% above inflation, which is currently at 10.1%, and claimed the government's offer, a £1,400 pay rise, is insufficient. Recent analysis by London Economic, conducted for the union, showed that an experienced nurse's salary has fallen by 20% in real terms since 2010. Ahead of the ballot, the Royal College of Nursing's General Secretary and Chief Exec, Pat Cullen, said there's never been a more crucial time to fight for safe staffing and fair pay. So, just how significant is this ballot result? And what has pushed nurses to vote for strike action? Joining me now is Lucy Shapcott, an A&E nurse from Bristol. So, Lucy, I understand many nurses voted for this strike action with a heavy heart. But can you give us an idea of what exactly has pushed nurses to this point where strikes seem to be the only way to be heard? Yeah, so I think it is with a heavy heavy heart, absolutely. You know, striking is not really in our nature. And, you know, it's not something we've really done before. But we have seen, you know, a big increase in nurses leaving. um, And that's sort of compromised patient care. And we're really feeling that, you know, actually on a day-to-day basis it's not something that is sort of rare anymore you know this is this is happening every day every day we're short-staffed and every day we're feeling that patient care is compromised and there is definitely sort of a growing fear amongst myself and my colleagues that there's the risk that something could go wrong you know with staff in the way it is and we don't want it to get any worse. That's it. I was going to mention that, you know, the staffing issues that you mentioned there, that we know the NHS has been struggling with throughout this year, really. 
can you just give us an idea of how bad it has got and the sort of struggles you do face day to day, as you said? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, we know already that more nurses have left this year than they did the previous year. Um, And I think a study as well said that two thirds of those nurses were younger nurses, so under 45. And that is reflected in day to day life at work. So nurses qualify, they pay to qualify, they have student loans like everybody else. Then once they're qualified, they come into a department that's already short of staff and they're working really hard and working really hard from day one of qualifying. And for example, in my place of work, you know, we've had nurses leave, we have nurses join, but we have nurses leave as well. We've had five nurses over the last couple of months that are actually leaving the NHS entirely, have gone to Australia. We've had a couple of nurses quit nursing as well. And that's really worrying to have nurses that haven't long qualified just leaving the NHS that trains them. Is it a case of, as you sort of described really, what they're experiencing at work, being sort of overwhelmed, that's pushing these people out? Is it pay? Is it a combination? I think it's a combination of things. So, I mean, what's really hard is um, obviously pay hasn't sort of increased with cost of living, which is really difficult for a lot of nurses, um, you know, and nurses are really feeling that. And I think they feel that actually, you know, the stress that comes with the job and the responsibility that comes with the job isn't worth the sort of remuneration that they get for it. So one of my colleagues that left recently and left nursing altogether went to work in a completely unrelated field in management, earning the same amount of money. And you know, that's what nurses are saying. They feel that not only can they not deliver the care, but also their that their sort of nursing registration is at risk because of, you know, what they're facing daily, which, you know, is, comprom- is in some ways compromising patient care, however hard they work. You know, most people aren't in hospitals all the time, like nurses. Can you sort of describe to us what the worst shifts look like for, for nurses? So the worst shifts are, I, I mean, it's it's very it's very difficult. I'm in emergency care. So in emergency care, we obviously have absolutely no stop limit on patients arriving to our department. So we can't ever close. We can't divert patients to another emergency department because they're all in the same situation as us. So on a day-to-day basis, you've got lots and lots of patients coming in. That's combined with a lack of space, um, nursing ratios that are constantly increasing because it is an emergency department. So, you know, they might start off, in fact, I'd say they probably at the moment aren't even starting off that good, maybe one one nurse to 10 patients. And sometimes in the day that increases. And we've had times where we've had one nurse to 18 patients. And I, I, I don't, you know, it's just not possible to be keeping an eye on 18 patients at, all at the same time. You know, and the sickest ones will get good treatment still. You know, we do deliver good emergency care still. But, you know, that's not really good enough. We need to be able to deliver the care to all of the patients that come in. And what's it been like for you when you've come back, finished on, you know, those horrendous shifts where you've got, as you said, up to 18 people 
to look after just to one nurse. I mean, how how do you sort of decompress after that? Yeah, I mean, it is really, really hard. So I um, was late finishing my shift yesterday. That's sort of quite a common occurrence that we don't often finish on time. By the time I'd finished, which was at nine o'clock, I hadn't eaten since half past one because I hadn't been able to have a tea break. So that was quite hard. And then you get home and you you sort of, it, it's really, it's hard to describe how you feel. You feel really exhausted because it is exhausting because it's every single day and you feel like, you know, you're letting down patients and that's not what you trained for. And, you know, sometimes you come home and not just me, I know my colleagues do the same and you, you know, you start to do things like Googling what you can do that's not nursing with a nursing degree but I mean, really, that's personally, that's quite reactive. You know, I would do that because I've had a stressful shift. But, you know, that's not sort of what I would really be doing. I'm not really thinking of leaving the profession um, in the long term or even in the short term. But, you know, you just feel like something needs to give and you don't really know what that is. We know the, the Royal College of Nursing is sort of asking for a pay rise of 5% above inflation. If the government came back and said, "Okay, we can't do that, but we can give you a pay rise, let's say in line with inflation, for example, would you accept that? I think, you know, nurses need to at least have a good cost, you know, at least able to be able to afford the cost of living. And that's really, you know, we want to be able to deliver good patient care, but we can't do that unless we're able to look after ourselves as well. And I think that, you know, we also want to attract nurses and retain nurses. So we're not greedy. We just want to be able to look after ourselves and look after others. And we'd have to look at what they offered us and it would have to be sort of costed and worked out whether that was going to be, you know, enough for nurses to live on, I guess. But, you know, that's all we, you know, we don't want thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of pounds. You know, we're not going to ever be millionaires. You don't come into this job to get rich, but you do want to be able to live, you know, and look after yourself. What's your message to government in terms of of this this issue? I'd like to say to the government that they just need to listen to what we're saying. I mean, it's not new that we knew that the NHS was sort of losing staff ever since I qualified 14 years ago. We knew that there was sort of, they always talked about an ageing workforce and that we would need to attract nurses to the profession for staffing levels to stay safe. And obviously then on top of that, we've had, you know, an increase in patients with complex needs that are living longer, that attend hospitals, and we need to be able to look after them as well. We just want the government to hear what we're saying. And we've got to the point now where they haven't listened to us over those, you know, 14 years that I've been qualified, but they need to listen to us now. And if they're not going to listen to us, we don't really see that there's any option but to strike. But, you know, we wouldn't, we actually really don't want it to get to that point. <laughs> Let's take a break now. In part two, we shift our attention to politics as Rishi Sunak admits that he regrets appointing Sir Gavin Williamson into cabinet. Mr Speaker, I obviously regret appointing someone who has had to resign in these circumstances. Even 
when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Lawrence Delalio, host of the Evening Standard Rugby Podcast, brought to you in partnership with QBE Business Insurance. The show is available to listen to now and right up to the end of the season when the winners of the Champions Cup will be crowned at Tottenham Hotspur Stadium and the fight for the Premiership title will be decided at Twickenham. QBE is one of the world's leading insurers and they will help your business build resilience through risk management and insurance solutions. Subscribe and download now wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Rishi Sunak has admitted he regrets appointing Sir Gavin Williamson into Cabinet. But I think what the British people would like to know is that when situations like this arise, that they will be dealt with properly. Sir Gavin resigned after just a fortnight in office as he was accused of bullying by a former official at the Ministry of Defence. He was also reported by former Chief Whip Wendy Morton for sending expletive-laden messages complaining about being refused an invitation to the Queen's funeral. At PMQs today, Rishi Sunak insisted his government would still be characterised by integrity, professionalism and accountability. But how will this resignation impact the PM's reputation? And does it represent a step backwards for the Conservative Party? Joining me now to discuss it is the Evening Standard's deputy political editor, David Bond. So, David, how big a blow to the Conservatives is this resignation by Gavin Williamson? Well, I don't think it's a massive, massive blow. But what it does is it shines a light on Rishi Sunak's judgment, given that when he went into number 10 just two and a half weeks ago, he made this big pledge that the government would be accountable and govern with integrity. So I think the fact that you've had a resignation so quickly of a minister that Sunak had appointed doesn't look great. But I think, you know, we shouldn't overstate it. Gavin Williamson was clearly uh, sort of not in one of the senior positions in cabinet. He was there as the sort of cabinet office fixer. And, you know, I think if we were talking about perhaps Suella Braverman, which will come on to the Home Secretary or one of the other big offices of state, then it would be uh, a bit more damaging. But clearly it's not good. It's raised these questions about Sunak's judgment uh, and integrity. And it's been dominating the headlines for the last few days. So the question is now whether that will continue or whether Williamson's resignation will now draw a line under that. And I understand there was a sort of timeline of events around messages sent by Gavin, followed by these allegations. Has pressure on him been building pretty much from day one? It has. And he's a divisive figure within the Conservative Party. He's obviously been sacked twice before this resignation by uh, two previous prime ministers, Boris Johnson and Theresa May. Uh, He's known to cultivate this you know, this image is this Francis Durkett figure from House of Cards, if you remember the BBC political drama back in the 80s. So, you know, he definitely divides opinion and he is not popular with all of his colleagues. And I think there were a few people who were 
looked at his reappointment to cabinet and thought, hang on, you know, that shouldn't have happened. And so the knives were out for him from some of his opponents. And you've had a series of allegations. So the first ones came from another former chief whip, like Williamson was a chief whip, Wendy Morton. She said that he had sent this expletive laden text message to to her over the Queen's funeral and, and Sir Gavin wanted to go to the to the Queen's funeral like a lot of senior MPs and presumably there wasn't enough space and, and it was Wendy Morton who was sort of on the receiving end of of his anger about that, something for which he says that he has apologised to Wendy Morton and regrets, but that is a subject of a Conservative Party investigation but also an investigation by Parliament's own independent grievance and complaint scheme, which is also looking into that as we understand it. And then we also got claims that when he was Defence Secretary, Gavin Williamson, he made some pretty inappropriate comments about a former civil servant, which sort of raised new questions about his conduct and behaviour as well. So these things were starting to mount up. It was becoming a problem for Rishi Sunak's government. And that's why last night on Tuesday night, Gavin Williamson announced that he was uh, stepping down from his role in the cabinet office and uh, because it had become such a big distraction. That's it. And as you mentioned, he said he was stepping back because of the fact that it was becoming a distraction and also because he plans to clear his name. Could there be a way back for him if he does manage that? (laughs) Well, never say never. He's obviously bounced back three times now and three times has gone. He was education secretary, obviously, and then also defence secretary. And he was forced out of government by Theresa May amid allegations that he had leaked information from a National Security Council meeting. Uh, and then, of course, as education secretary, he, he was in charge at uh, the time of the A-level exam marking fiasco. So, you know, his, his record is not great, but, you know, some people see him as a useful fixer, again, someone who is prepared to maintain party discipline, perhaps use the dark arts to, to maintain that party discipline, and is seen as someone useful to leaders. You know, he's always managed to back the right leaders in the past. So he quickly got on board with Theresa May, helping her to win when she became prime minister back in 2016-17. And then he backed Boris Johnson as well. And this occasion, he backed Rishi Sunak. So he's quite good at backing future leaders. So never say never with Gavin Williamson, but I would say at the moment, it's looking pretty difficult. There's also another question, actually, John, which is around his own constituency, which is looks like he might be one of the MPs to really be facing the squeeze following a boundary commission review, which will come into force next year and could be in place for the next general election. So he may face having to lose his own seat anyway. So there may be a sort of route out of politics for him, which he he can't avoid anyway. You sort of mentioned earlier about how this impacts Rishi Sunak's reputation, some of the things he said when coming into government. He's been defended by Gillian Keegan this morning. How much of an easy shot does this give Labour, really, when it comes to debating with him in the Commons? Well, pretty easy. I mean, you know, it's uh, it's another gift to Labour. Richie Sunak was desperate to kind of become boring. He wanted the message to be stability, integrity, and to focus on the economy. But, you know, just a few weeks into his premiership, he's already had to U-turn over his decision not to go to the COP27 summit. So that's not looked good. He's then faced this huge storm over the appointment of Suella Braverman back to the Home Office after she was sacked for breaching the ministerial code. If you remember over sending a draft 
written ministerial statement to another conservative MP from her own personal email account. And, you know, Labour and the Lib Dems are keen to really step up the pressure now on Rishi Sunak over that appointment of Suella Braverman, especially with all the, the sort of row over the Manston Processing Centre in Kent and the migrants crisis going on. So expect perhaps the focus to shift to that. But the big question, of course, is, you know, and this is what sort of Labour keeps saying now, they're saying this is all evidence of Rishi Sunak's weak leadership and his poor judgment. And that even though he's trying to sort of turn the page and say that this is a new administration, you know, forget what happened under Liz Truss, all the chaos around the markets and that mini budget, actually, this is according to Labour and the Lib Dems, you know, the sort of last throes of a dying administration. And to use a, a cliche, within the Westminster bubble, this is obviously uh, quite significant, but do you think the public sort of react and respond to these kinds of debacles that affect the government? Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, I think less so because if you compare it to the sorts of headlines and stories we've all been dealing with here at Westminster over the last few months, if not the whole year, actually, you know, it does feel a bit second division, you know, and I think the public are fed up. I think generally the public are sort of fed up with some of this stuff and they're perhaps more interested in reading about Matt Hancock in the jungle or the new series of The Crown. You know, I think people can take only so much politics and, and we've had so much drama here at Westminster. But I do think you have to see it in that broader context of kind of where this government is heading, even though you've got a new prime minister, we've got this budget coming next week. I still think once we get to that, people will re-engage in quite a big way because obviously what happened under Liz Truss was so uh, significant. People are worried about their mortgages. People are worried about the cost of living. And I think that will speak directly to that major problem, which is the top of people's agenda. There's more news, interviews and analysis in the evening Standard newspaper and at standard.co.uk. That's The Leader. Thanks for listening. We're back tomorrow afternoon at four o'clock. Hi, I'm Lawrence Delalio, host of the Evening Standard Rugby podcast, brought to you in partnership with QBE Business Insurance. The show is available to listen to now and right up to the end of the season when the winners of the Champions Cup will be crowned at Tottenham Hotspur Stadium and the fight for the Premiership title will be decided at Twickenham. QBE is one of the world's leading insurers and they will help your business build resilience through risk management and insurance solutions. Subscribe and download now wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.